Welcome to this podcast for Classical 91.5. I'm Julia Figueres. Two guests to talk about two pieces today. This week, your Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra takes on the beloved violin concerto by Sibelius and the Searing Symphony No. 10 by Shostakovich. Here to chat about them are RPO Music Director Ward Steer. Hi, Ward. Hi, Julia. And fan favorite and Rochester violinist Augustine Hedelich. Welcome back. Hi, great to see you again. It's nice to have you back in town. So let's talk a little bit about uh, about what's going on with this Sibelius Violin Concerto, which uh, really, Ward, wasn't all that beloved when it was first performed. It kind of bombed. Well, I don't know why, because I've always loved it. I think it's a great piece, but um, it's it's definitely challenging for the orchestra and certainly for the soloists. But um, I think there's just so much in the piece. The three movements are such um, have so much character, and they're so different from each other. Actually, that um, uh, even if it wasn't maybe successful at the very first performance, I I'm glad that it's uh, become a standard today, and it's just a wonderful piece. Well, he did a lot of rewrites on it, and they tried it again, mm-hmm. and it worked better the second time. Augustine, have you ever seen the actual original version of this concerto? Yes, I looked at it once. Um, it's, I think, much worse, I would say. <laughs> so it's the same music, of course, but it's about 10 minutes longer, and it's sort of repetitive. It has a lot of more problems in the orchestration sometimes you just can't hear the soloists but actually during the rehearsal today we were talking about mm-hmm. the first version at one point because sometimes seeing the original draft and seeing what he cut out helps you understand what his intention was in some cases because when there are transitions that are a bit awkward but it's because there's actually a piece of music missing that was cut out uh, that's one example um, but I think Overall, these were all very uh, wise decisions, and as a result, it's a piece um, that I think is much more successful than it would have been in the premiere. And uh, you can't, you couldn't really take anything else away. It's really compact and has so rich and has everything. And um, you know, I think one other reason why maybe it wasn't so successful is because it's very, very difficult technically. Um, in, In some ways, more difficult than some of the other concertos that most soloists would have been playing around then and it took a while during which you know for for a few decades maybe violinists didn't really look at it so closely because it was just so difficult and then Heifetz came along and was like oh I guess (laughs) I guess that's possible it sounds pretty good so maybe then everyone learned it and interestingly (laughs) Sibelius really had this dream of being a fabulous violinist Um, and yet some violinists say that the solo part of this is a little awkward at times. I think all of Sibelius's music is very awkward on purpose. I think in terms of the the kinds of phrases that he writes, the kinds of melodies he searches for, he's always look, looking for very unusual um, ideas and motifs. And um, this kind of awkwardness is something he looks for. You know, I, I think it it's violinistic in the sense that it, it lies well on the ins- on the instrument, you know, much much more so than the music of Brahms, for example, or you know, people who didn't play the violin at all uh, were pianists. So I can tell that he played the violin, but maybe I can also tell that it had been a while <laughs> since he mm. played the played the violin, and uh, so there are things that are possible in theory, but really hard to do in practice, and maybe he thought. 
he didn't quite remember just how difficult some of the this, this stuff was. Or maybe it was a bit of the revenge on the violinists. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, because that had been his dream and it didn't it didn't happen for him to be a violin, violin soloist. Yeah. yeah, let's see you people work this one out. <laughs> this is a beautiful, the, 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 the trip that we go on, the journey that we go on, I think in, in this uh, concerto is one of my favorites. Oh, it begins very chilly almost like you're walking through um, a Finnish wilderness, as it were. It's very, I mean, <laughs> it's sort of quintessential Sibelius. I mean, so much of his music is about nature and about the landscape, you know, in, in Finland. And I, you really get a sense of it, I think, in the opening bars, just sort of, you know, like you said, maybe a chilly day, a breeze, you know, little swirls of snow here and there. Um, just this great vista, you know, there's, you have a sense of this expanse, you know, and mystery also in the opening, and, and it gradually sort of gets going, and, you know, it gets more robust, and, uh, but the, the scope and scale of the first movement really is kind of epic, which is wonderful. And it begins with, with the violinist. You really set the tone, Augustine, when mm. this, when this piece begins. Yes, I think, I think in terms of the form, it's, it's uh, influenced uh, more by the Mendelssohn than by s some of the other classic examples. So the fact that the violin enters right away and that the cadenza is in the middle of the first movement, and so in some ways he was he was I think looking to write that type of concerto. That's a very serious musical statement, but also a very virtuosic, soloistic, romantic violin concerto. Um, but what you say is is so true that it's so colorful and descriptive i think particularly the orchestral part mm -hmm. it's almost like it's it is the the landscape through which i the violinist am am moving and the, the other thing that strikes me is that even though the f it, there's the stereotype that finnish people you know kind of cold and res very reserved um actually um when, I, often when you get to know them, you realize that they're ex extremely passionate people and kind of wear their heart on their sleeves, a sleeve and extremely, mm -hmm. um, there are these sort of emotional outbreaks. And this, this um, the the writing for the solo violin is extremely expressive and romantic and emotional. Um, so it, uh, I really, I, I always come back to thinking that this like a protagonist that is moving through this through this landscape and then has to face all these I don't know challenges and this you know I don't know maybe there's a storm that you can hear in right, the orchestra right. but uh, but there's this very very human voice full of emotion uh, that is yeah you get a sense that uh, I mean in the in the beginning there's almost a sense of isolation or, or like you're coming onto the scene you know from from somewhere like the action we sort of cut in in the middle of the action there's a story mm -hmm. that we don't know that happened before mm -hmm, you right. know you, you've been through a lot at this you know and you, the piece is just starting but you're sort of you're bringing this great depth I think as a storyteller and as a protagonist in the drama you know and then as the music develops and gets more complicated it is like you're struggling either directly you know maybe against a storm nature or something or you're just relating the passion of your previous experiences that are still a mystery because we don't really know what happened but mm. it's just got a lot of layers which I think is fabulous I think yes the, in, in another way in which it has a lot of layers is also it's again in the in the orchestration that they're often mm -hmm. 
layers of like textures that he creates by different rhythms that are con that create this sense of unease mm -hmm. below the surface. Mm -hmm. So he somehow communicates this emotional life. And I think Complexity. even you know even though it's very Nordic, yeah. um, and we're talking about the snow of Finland and. But I think it's a very different sound that as a violinist you're looking for than you would look for, for example, with when you play Shostakovich, mm -hmm. which is also music that's written in cold climate. But <laughs> uh, I, I think I think in Zibelius, you're not necessarily looking for like an icy cold sound. You're actually it is actually very very rich mm -hmm. and um, dark. It's warm. And it's like yeah, it, but it comes from a deep warmth place you know, within the sound. Yeah. 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 How does this oh. um, how does this this um, complexity in the orchestra, the layers in the orchestra, play out for you as the conductor ward? Well, you have to um, you have to frame it for everyone so that they have room to bring out their lines. You know, and th there are a lot of the piece is very complicated, but I find myself the more I do it, trying to stay out of the way. Really, you know, I mean, there are moments where I need to be there, but also there, there's a lot of freedom and you have to, it's, it's chamber music, really, but it's very complex. So, you know, like when we get to the, the Largamente in the first movement and, you know, we have all these rhythms, he puts groups of like four on top of groups of three and there's all this uh, polyrhythms going on. We've been talking mm -hmm. about that a lot. And so I try to, you know, show the big beats and just give everyone, um, you know, a space in which they can live and create this this churning and this tension and th these these complicated rhythms so that they can fit together and feel organic and natural you know you can't i don't think you can micromanage things like that too much because it it then it it loses its soul you know yes and also you know as a soloist you want to have it, it, it is actually better if it's not micromanaged if you have a frame right. within which you have some freedom mm-hmm but you have to be very aware not to take it too far. In that particular place, it's very tempting for the oh, soloist yeah. to take lots of time to do like this very romantic rubato that you might do. And you know, if it was Tchaikovsky concerto, maybe you'd play it much freer rhythmically. But actually, then the other voices no longer make sense. Right. So this is a piece where you always need to be very aware of what is, you know, what else is going on, and what you have to make. What do you have to do in order to for the whole thing to mm -hmm. uh, to come to come together and and make sense together? And in this case, in that theme, even though it's so passionate, you have some f you have some freedom to stretch and and push and pull, but you actually must stay within that framework so that the polyrhythm uh, does so that it's audible. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, suddenly it'll sound like a much simpler rhythm yeah. because you yeah. because you took the rhythmic freedom and now things line up and and it doesn't sound like very much actually now right. you're taking away the complexity by doing too much to it yeah it's it's like a, it's like a chromaticism you know in harmony or, or like counterpoint when the lines intersect and they rub i mean you can do the very same thing with rhythmical finger figures uh and that's exactly what he does uh in the first movement and also in the second uh, third movement a little bit too hmm. now in the middle movement it's like um, the long journey has taken you to a place that is safe and it is warm. It's almost as if you've come in from the cold, and you are now sitting in front of a fire, mm -hmm. and you're you're <laughs> relaxing. It's a it's a it's a really um, 
it's kind of high drama in the middle too. This is a very romantic mm-hmm. uh, movement. Yeah, I think it's in, it's incredibly. Um, well, it's like a, a really an emotional outpouring, but not in a hot-tempered way. You know, like it takes the f- the, the, f- the that that theme of the second movement takes its time and it's very expansive, mm-hmm. but very heartfelt and warm and. Um, it's it's very much unlike any other theme you would find in any other violin concerto. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really quite unique. So actually, that can be when you when you first learn the piece, it is a bit challenging because you can't really approach it like you would normally approach uh, the theme of a second movement, which generally you know they have a pretty straightforward form. It's not that long, and you you know in this case you have to pace yourself so long and it's as though you're singing with the, like a never-ending breath you have to always know how to keep the phrase going further and further and uh, not reach the peak too soon you mm-hmm, know and mm-hmm. basically have this you know over the span of two minutes three minutes or something yeah. uh, have that sense of where you are and where you're going so sure. that's yeah that's that's something um, uh Quite, quite, quite unusual. But it's it's an incredible feeling, in to play it in concert mm. uh, when you're in the m- when you're in the middle of that. And uh, actually, it's one of my favorite things to play. Have to oh say. yeah, well, and the way you sustain it is just so compelling. I mean, even though it's it's a you know, it's got a lot of warmth. It's got a lot of lyricism. There's an ease about it. There's a comfort. There's also a lot of tension, though, created because he has this long line that just never stops. It's just relentless, and it's that quiet intensity that's just so beautiful that can be brought out. You know, these middle movements are often, uh, you can feel like they're lullabies. You can feel like they're love songs. This one strikes me as so different because it feels to me like there's a great deal of longing Mm. in it. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily I'm in love, but it's something... There's a reaching, there's a yearning, there's a stretching yeah. out, you know, that just, you know. <laughs> yes. It's hard to describe, but it's, you know, it's a feeling that's, you're right, it's very different. Mm. And it wraps up with something that one person called a Polonaise for polar bears. <laughs> well, we were talking about <laughs> we that We were earlier talking about that about lunch. <laughs> how, how silly the phrase is, actually, because it's not, <laughs> it's a, Polonaise, not a Polonaise, but yeah. I think this, this music critic just liked alliteration, so... Polonaise for polar bears. I don't know. It sounds more to <laughs> me very martial. When I hear this movement, it sounds like the beating of war drums. Mm. Well, yes, yeah. It, the great thing about um, the third movement is that it's it's not just martial. There's definitely a march, but there's also a dance. And so we've been talking about this a lot also today. Um, the piece, the third movement is in 3-4 throughout, right? But if you look carefully at the rhythms again there's a huge the second theme is really in six eight so instead of one two three it's one two so like one and two and three or or one two three one two three so the the pulse changes and that what that does is i think it just it's more elegant it's more lyrical it's a little more fun that way when you think of it Hmm. in six eight and then the juxtaposition between the more driving march rhythm which is you know with this sort of lighter more dance like elegant rhythm is uh, is really it's awesome 
Yeah, I, I, it, it is an awesome movement. Yes, I think there's something. Um, I think that the dance aspect of the second theme is something that is sometimes neglected, and I mm -hmm. think it's very it's an essential part of it. But there is also something slightly threatening about it, or it's a dance that's a little I don't know infernal dance, or, mm -hmm. or and some of that has to do with the with the low. Uh, tem with with the low register and the dark timbre and dark mm -hmm. colors of the orchestration, but even in the very opening, that this kind of mm, rumbling, you know, yeah, rumbling or riding yeah. rhythm or whatever right. it is is that that you hear is is very low and it just feels like it's dangerous. You mm -hmm. know, this, this mm -hmm. can't be good. You know, right. like that right. sort of feeling. So even though it's 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 fun, it has a it has a dark side, and I think this is. Uh, something uh, um, that I associate very much with the last movement. So it's not the last movement like it's the complete opposite of like for example the last movement of the Mendelssohn or the last last movement of the Beethoven concerto these kinds of happy mm -hmm. last movements where you actually you kind of lose all that dark baggage mm -hmm. and you're uh, often very much in the upper register bright colors and this is the complete opposite but he manages to have a ton of fun with it, and with this, with this rhythmic tension going back and forth, um, which is something you uh, sometimes it's slightly ambiguous. Like some instruments might be doing the rhythm in right. three, and some might be doing it in two, and and um, you've you've uh, as a listener, I think you're not necessarily aware of oh we're in two now, we're in three now. You're not necessarily aware of this technical aspect, but you feel that there is some kind of uneasiness about mm -hmm. it he never quite allow allows you to just settle into a groove yeah, yeah to settle into a groove and just uh, really have a great time you always feel like something's wrong you know, yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and this was a time too when finland was coming out from underneath the thumb of russia and mm -hmm. so there was unease in the country with you know will they come back will will we be fully free so i think maybe perhaps some of that shows up in the movement as well I listened to your recording that you did with Hanu Lintu today mm -hmm. as I was prepping for the, the podcast. And have you changed what you're doing with this much since you last recorded that? Well, the recording was made about um, five, almost six years ago. And what I usually do is during the process of the recording and right afterwards, I'm listening so much to what the, to the takes that I played, and I'm really involved with it, and I go a little crazy. So afterwards, I usually try not to listen for a long time, and I re recently listened to it again, maybe for the first time in five years or something like that. And actually, I really didn't like it in some some places. I I kind of was thinking, wow, I do some of these things very differently now, and I think it comes partially. Some of it actually comes because I had listened so much to the recording that I'd become aware of certain things mm -hmm. in the score that I hadn't paid enough attention to before, and things like that. Other things also came, I think, from conductors that mm. I'm always, you know, it's, it's a collaboration in which you're always influenced by the people you, you work with. And so maybe I, I've absorbed some of that and I've gotten older and maybe more patient sometimes so uh so it's 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 hard to say but f uh, for example i think the very opening of the piece i take 
somewhat more time and more freedom. I think it's a little bit more searching now. Whereas in the old recording, it sounded like I really knew where I was going and it's, you know, kind of entered and was like playing the, the theme. I think it's uh, maybe a little more more subtle now mm -hmm. um, than there are some things. This, this Actually, this switching between two and the doing it in two and doing it in three in the last movement that we were talking about, we didn't really do that in the recording. Mm -hmm. And it was, um, I was aware of that idea, but it was, uh, either the, the material starts in the orchestral part. Um, so we, we didn't really do that, but then later on I came to really believe that this is such an essential part of the movement. So now it's actually a big part of every rehearsal that I do of the piece that I talk about that. And yeah. So in your conversations with Ward, have you made any new discoveries while you've been working with the RPO this week? Well, you know, we started this we morning. Yeah, so we <laughs> <laughs> we've only had about 40 minutes. This, you know, morning, this, <laughs> this morning is this week, you know. <laughs> yeah, ask us next week. No, but I mean, uh, for me, um, I was aware of the, you know, approach, the two to three, um, but I'll never forget the first time I ever saw a performance where that was done, and I, I was sort of, you know, just bewildered at first because I didn't know what was going on, you know, immediately. And I don't think I had conducted the piece yet, so I hadn't really spent a lot of time with the score. Um, and then when I did, then I sort of remembered that and I looked and I understood why. But, you know, not, not every orchestra is as adept as the RPO, so sometimes it's dangerous to do that. And um, so being able to to have a an artistic partner like Augustine, who's just you know so comfortable and does it so beautifully, and an orchestra that can really sort of bring that out for me has been a great uh, experience this week because it feels like we're doing a more nuanced, um, just more detailed and and more beautiful rendition of it than perhaps I've done in the past. Not to name any names, but this is <laughs> I think this is going to be really nice for me. You know, I won't name names either, but I also felt this morning that. Uh, I was really impressed how how clear and beautiful and detailed it was r right away from the, mm -hmm. from the start, and I think that's very much your doing, of course. Yeah. Uh, but also the orchestra, who's uh, who are very were very quick to mm. absorb these ideas, and yeah. I've you know seen the opposite happen many times. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> uh, sometimes it can be kind of a lo uh, more difficult yeah. journey until you get there. So. Yeah. So what are you going to be using for a violin this time around? Um, I think it's the same one that I had the last time I was here. Um, and it's a violin that was made in 1723. It's a Stradivarius. Um, the nickname is the Exquisivetta. It's named after a violinist who was playing it in the 19th century. And it's unknown through the Stradivari Society. So I've had it for uh, about eight years. I think actually, but the very first time that I came to town and that I sat here, I think with Hanulintu, right? We yeah. Actually, we had the interview with Hanulintu. Um, I was still playing a different, a different violin, which was also a, st a strat, but much earlier. And uh, I, I assume you're getting along with this one well. Yes, I like it very, very much. It's very beautiful. One thing that I appreciate is. Uh, there's several strengths that are really useful for a piece like this. One is that the sound carries well in a big hall, and when you play with a in a piece with large orchestration, like Sibelius, that's really a 
very large orchestration you need a big sound and so this is um a good instrument for that but one thing that i appreciate is um how many colors one can produce on it that you know there are some violins that are very beautiful but they just have this kind of one beautiful sound mm -hmm. and in Sibelius is one piece where you really want to um have a lot of s small nuances and this violin supplies that. Maybe this will become the ex Hadler at some <laughs> point. <laughs> okay. So the second piece on the um, on the program is the Symphony Number no. Ten by uh, Shostakovich, which was premiered right after Stalin's death in 1953. But we really don't know when it was actually written. He might have might have started this earlier. Well, yeah. There's been a lot of debate about this, and of course, <coughs> Shostakovich. Uh, the timeline of his music is not always clear because uh, he withheld a lot of pieces along the way. And um, we have to remember two things. Um, in At this point in his life, so 1953, he hadn't written, you know, or at least released a symphony in a long time since the Ninth Symphony because <clears throat> the Ninth Symphony got him in trouble again with Stalin, uh, they were not, it was the second time, then he had the huge, the second denunciation, declared the non-person, put on the enemy's list, all these really just awful things, and to go through that one time would be, I think, just absolutely horrific, and to have to go through it twice, I mean, I don't blame him for sort of retreating into, you know, sort of, uh, <laughs> what I was going to say into his shell, but I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an even more protected place, I think, because he was just really shattered. Yeah, but he really came out swinging with this one. Well, but but so this is the thing. Um, you also, you have to remember that Stalin died suddenly. Nobody saw it coming. He just, you know, fell over dead one day. It was sort of abrupt. So um, he, I have read uh, studies and um, accounts of his students and colleagues and very close friends because he didn't share a lot with most people, but he was, he really loved his students. He was a great teacher, Shostakovich, uh, and he had a few confidants musically that he would share things with. And they remember sketches from the mid-40s that show up in this symphony. Um, and they also remember him playing long, you know, excerpts that sound very, very similar to the finished products uh, in this symphony um, in like, you know, the late 40s again. And, and Shostakovich actually wanted to write a war trilogy Right, so it was supposed to be seven, eight, and nine were supposed to be the three war symphonies. But when he got to the ninth, uh, we talked about this when we did it last season. Actually, uh, how he, you know, they, Stalin wanted, you know, the Russian Beethoven nine and this big glorification of him and the victory over Germany and all this. Um, and he, Shostakovich, promised this grand symphony with voices and all that, and then he gave us the ninth, which is like, you know very sarcastic flippant you know short it, it's like totally the polar opposite of what yeah. he was uh, what was expected of him and i think that was you know his defiance in a way and just not willing to to do that which you know caused trouble but this really is the third this the tenth symphony for me is the third in the war trilogy so even though stalin died just before it was premiered i don't think it's a reaction to stalin's death directly i think there's a moment at the end where I think you could make the argument that he put it in like, oh, did you hear the news? Stalin died. But the bulk of the symphony, and it's a significant, you know, it's almost an hour long, um, is belongs in the war period for me. And um, 
it, I mean, there are a lot of things that are about Stalin, but it's not a reaction to Stalin's death. But it is very possibly a reaction to all that Stalin and the Cultural Committee did to him. Oh, uh, no, without question. Yes, yes, for sure. When, so this begins with, uh, as I said, begins with a bang. He, um, he comes out sweaty. To me, when, when I hear that first movement, I think, man, this guy is mad. Well, but, but the first movement, think about how it starts, though. It's not, it starts very slowly, and it starts very tentatively. And you have to remember, I mean, he's got these mysterious wandering lines in the bass, and they, the, the low strings, and, and again, it's very dark. He uses all these low instruments, uh, very subtle tones, and it's almost as if he's just quietly trying to creep out of the shadows back into the public light, you know, after this period of relative silence and, and shame and, you know, tremendous inner turmoil. And not knowing how much is going to be allowed. Yeah, right. I mean, you get this great sense of hesitation. I mean, the first movement is uh, but anywhere between, you know, 24, 25 to, I've heard it even closer to 30 minutes long before. So it's a huge, it's a big architecture, it's a big structure, um, and the, you have to really take a lot of care to build the form throughout. And the hesitation in the beginning is really key because as as the symphony sort of gently starts to move, it, you know, you, it, it it goes in a series. There are a couple little swells, a couple little, you know, peaks and valleys, but it's basically a, a seven or eight minute introduction. And then uh, if you want to be really simple about it, it's a 10 minute crescendo and it's a 10 minute diminuendo. It's this huge arc that just builds and builds and builds to a climax where the whole orchestra is like wailing in pain, the pain of the oppression, the pain of all these awful things that had been done to Shostakovich and having to endure that. It's just this big lament in the middle, but it's violent. And then it starts to go away, just get further. It's like we've had this this moment of, you know, just sort of getting out that primal cry, and then we have to return back to reality, and it just it's like a big slope down toward the end. And that at the end, you're left with, um, he starts the beginning with the lowest voices in the orchestra, and in the very end, just the piccolo, one solitary voice left hanging, suspended in midair. And you can't help but think of that as, you know, Shostakovich feeling so alone, so isolated, and so vulnerable. Uh, there's nothing, the way he sets up the end of the of the first movement, you just, you have this sense of real fragility and vulnerability. Two piccolos turn to one piccolo, and then just one piccolo has a line that gets less and less active until it's just hanging there, like, you know, completely exposed. Then we move into the second movement. The second movement's a little... Well, it's, it's a little polar country. opposite. Yeah, polar opposite. Um, some say it's a portrait of Stalin. It, I think that's true. You think that's true? Because, um, I will read it. This came from a book by Folkoff called Testimony. I'm mm -hmm. sure you've I've read, read it. it. Yeah. And and he says, uh, I did depict Stalin in my next symphony, the tenth. I wrote it right after Stalin's death, and no one has yet guessed what the symphony was about. It's about Stalin and the Stalin years. The second part, the scherzo, is a musical portrait of Stalin, roughly speaking, of course. There are many other things in it, but that's the basis. Some people say that's not true, that Folkoff was taking liberties hmm. when he when he put that alleged quote in by Shostakovich. But you think that Shostakovich was writing about Stalin. I Well, I think so. 
because the character of the movement, I mean, it's very fast, it's very virtuosic, um, but it's not happy. You know, it's not a roller coaster ride at all. You know, you have in the in the first movement, as I said, this this real emphasis on vulnerability and hesitation, and you know, the climax of these really complicated, deep, and painful emotions in the middle, and then you have this second movement that's almost um, indifferent in in so far as it doesn't there, there's a moment in the middle of it and it's only like four and a half minutes where I almost think of it as Stalin sitting back laughing at all the you know awful things he's putting everyone through you know ha 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 it's, it's, but it's this evil laughter um, and then in the beginning is just pure aggression I mean it's brutal it's like a beast um, just being unleashed and if you look at the, the movement um, I forget I used to know the number I should I don't have time to count them anymore but uh, someone counted the number of crescendos because there are all these little crescendos sometimes it's just a bar and there's like I don't know 70 or 90 or so it's a huge number of crescendos but they're all little small ones and they're only like two moments where the orchestra does a diminuendo or drops off at all so it's this constant you know coming coming for you but in a in a relentless way and such an aggressive way but it's also controlled I mean you get the martial uh, you know, and you get the sense of some people say it's machine gun fire, or you know, it's just the the drums, the marching orders for all the all the goons that Stalin had after everyone, and Stalin sitting back, just sort of unleashing this terror without with complete indifference for anyone in its path. And the whole piece, the whole uh, second movement, if you want to consider it a piece, is over in like four and a half minutes. So it's like this rush of just pure, unadulterated aggression. And it's terrifying. It's terrifying. You know, do you feel that that, there, that, that Shostakovich is actually commenting um, on his feelings towards Stalin, or is this just a good portrait? <laughs> Boy, that's a that's a good question. Um, I I think it's probably both. I mean, I I think that the atmosphere of fear certainly permeated, I mean, as far as I can tell and have read, you know, pretty much everything and everyone during those years in, in Russia. Um, and Stalin uh, and Shostakovich, you know, as you know, had a kind of a personal relationship. I mean, they Stalin really headed out for Shostakovich, and Shostakovich was so brave in the acts of defiance that he was able to, to uh, I was going to say execute. Maybe that's a poor word uh, to use, or maybe it's a perfect word because you know he was constantly living in the in the fear of being taken away in the middle of the night and never heard from again. Would that have happened? Was was Stalin in a place with with a composer as well known and as well regarded as Shostakovich? Could could Stalin have gotten away with dragging him out of his house in the middle of the night and having him put up in front of a firing squad? Well, yes, he could have, but I mean, at the same time. Shostakovich was, I mean, he, he, everybody knew he was a great genius, and I think, but, but there were a lot of great artists that Stalin did that with, and unfortunately, they didn't have the stature, I guess, to, as sort of collateral against, you know, that fate with, with Stalin. Stalin, of course, himself was, he fancied himself a musician, or at least a music lover, which is (laughs) hard to imagine, but, um, so I think he also took pride in Shostakovich, even though he was constantly censoring him and slapping him down, you know, 
uh, holding him back. I think that he uh, he considered him like his pr- one of his prized pets almost, you know. And I, I don't I don't know if Stalin would ever have actually gone so far as to put him down, so to speak. Um, but he certainly wanted to maintain control over him. Now we go into the third movement. You can take this away. Hmm. Well, the third movement is um, it's like a it's an attempt at romance and an attempt at dancing and sort of trying to forget all these troubles. And and again, it starts very tentatively with this. So we have this waltz rhythm, but it doesn't feel fun at all. And it's like you're walking on eggshells and you're you're just again, it's like, can I can I relax? Can I let my hair down? Is this is this going to be OK? Um, and again, this great atmosphere of tension is created in the beginning, and it builds until we come to a moment where he has uh, the second big signature, the big code in this. You know, the the famous one is DSCH, his his own initial Shostakovich, um, which is pretty hard to miss <laughs> if you are listening to it. But there's another code which we didn't know until recently um, for Elmira who was a, a woman who he was sort of infatuated with, and it's still a little bit uh, unclear as to whether their relationship was ever fully realized or he was, it was sort of more unrequited love or a secret affair. or it, Either way, it's, it's very mysterious. And he, so he gives the horn, that, that uh, melody, which sounds at first like Das Lied von der Erde, you know, by Mahler. But it's the same notes uh, as the Mahler. But if you mix up the spelling of it a little bit between, you know, solfege and the notes, so you get e and then la, la mi, which is same as e but spelled differently, la mi re re ya, and then a again, el mira. That's what that is. And he repeats it something like uh, twelve or thirteen times throughout the movement. But when you first hear these initials, Elmira's initials, the horn plays, and it's like time stops, and then the, the character of the orchestra, it's like her her love or her the idea of her was somehow calming for him, and the orchestra relaxes a little bit, and it gets slightly more lyrical, and, and you get a sense that maybe there might even be some romance, and then when every time you hear those initials, there's a slightly different reaction in the orchestra, so this relationship was clearly very complex, um, and by the end of it, um, you know, you get this sort of raucous dance, you know, that, that happens. And then it's sort of, uh, after that's happened, you get this, you know, Elmira again, and then it sort of fades off again, uh, to again, a very quiet place. There are a lot of quiet endings. Um, and at the end of the third movement, the tension sort of, you get a feeling like the, the love at the end ultimately was, was hollow. You know, there, there's something about the tonality. It's a little ambiguous, and you don't really, it's very unresolved at the end of the third movement. And then it goes, I like to go quasi attacca into the fourth movement because the fourth movement for me is, uh, well. The fourth movement. And there's this is always a bone of contention in the interpretation, mm. fast or slow. Where do you go with that movement? Because some have done that movement as a slow funeral march right to the end. Some have raced, some have gone slow, that fast. How do you shape that final movement, which is the final statement? 
Well, uh, again, it um, so after the third movement, we get this feeling of um, it's not in the very beginning. It's more, uh, I think, um, desolate. You know, like Siberia a again. Low instruments. You know, poco vibrato. Not a lot of emotion. And then, I think, in some ways, the most painful and just heartbreaking and shatteringly beautiful, but so highly emotional moment is the oboe solo that opens. Oh my God, again, another instrument like the piccolo that has this timbre that is penetrating, but also so vulnerable. And it's just the oboe floating out there uh, by himself and Eric Bear is doing, I mean, he's playing it so, so convincingly, so compelling what he's doing. I think it's it might be the loneliest solo in the entire repertoire. It is just, I mean, it breaks your heart. And then it gets passed around a little bit. And, you know, we have the clarinet has a lot of great solos, the bassoon, the flute. Um, and then the theme that ends up turning into the, the fast music at the end emerges first slowly, you know, bom, 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 but he gets passed around. And then he takes a while, again, to work up to it. So you got to think about the pacing and the form. Uh, and we have allusions to the first movement and all sorts of things. And then uh, after we've had this tremendous introduction, then the Allegro starts. But it's not, again, it, on the surface, it looks maybe like all joy and fun and, and happiness. But it's, it's like this fake smile, you know, this ironic grin. It's, it's a sense that, you know, okay, I'm, I have to be happy now. <laughs> you know, show me some teeth in that smile, please. But there's this nervous energy that really, you know, is sort of electrifies the whole thing. So it doesn't feel fun and it doesn't feel comfortable, but it's fast. You know what I mean? And then it just sort of, it rushes, rushes forward at quite a clip. And then we get the DSCH again that starts to build in the orchestra. And there's this, this moment after the first, the penultimate climax, um, in the last movement where the orchestra gets a little quiet again, more, uh, more lyrical strings, you, this, uh, music and you get the feeling that he's by himself again after having to put on this public face, you know, <laughs> everything's great and being called a non-person twice. Right. And then the, the initials come in and they're like, a, they're just like repeated over and over and over again. And there's this image that I, read once that's always stuck with me that someone um, it's it's a scholar that I, whose name escapes me but I can't take credit for this idea but it's great that Shostakovich is depicting himself alone maybe in the bathroom in the privacy of his own apartment somewhere where he could stand in front of a mirror staring at his own reflection just trying to convince himself that he is in fact a human being and the initials come over and over and over again and then they get more strong and then the orchestra picks up again and we get to we get to push the final surge toward the end of the movement but it's it's punctuated constantly with this d s c h d s c h and then at the very very end the whole orchestra practically plays the initials big full-throated almost celebratory climax um but then the 16th notes and the the running the the constant you know, it almost feels like uh, you're fleeing now instead of celebrating anything, and it just sort of runs itself out to this big climax at the end, big flourish, and then boom, that's it, we're done. So it leaves you not feeling satisfied, like you've come to some resolution about something. It leaves you thinking, well, okay, Stalin's gone, but now what? There are some conductors who, in that very fast final section, do not take it quickly. 
and they have taken it on a slower, more deliberate. Well, it's kind of like yeah, the Fifth Symphony is where that's that's the huge question is right. the you know, and um, I think at the end the that's one approach. I, I think it's more common to go faster in this in this place, but. I think it works better if it's got that energy because you're always being chased. There's always someone over your yeah. shoulder, you know, and it, you really get that sense of a flight and trying to escape. People loved this, and 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 I've always baffled by that because he did this. It was an instant hit. The um, cultural committee did take a couple of days to decide whether or not they were going to slap him <laughs> with it, but people went nuts over this, and it strikes me as really interesting. Did they miss the point? Was he talking, was he saying something they really wanted to say, but they could not? I think you're giving them too much credit. I, I don't think they, I don't think they ever got the point. I think they just mm. did what they were told to do, and they didn't have anyone to tell them what to do yet at that moment. There was, it was a real, there was a lot of confusion after Stalin died at the uppermost levels of the government. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, things pretty much went on uninterrupted. I mean, he was forced to join the party after that, Shostakovich was, and he was still used kind of as a puppet. He was still abused. He was still, you know, not allowed to be free for his whole life. Augustine, what is it about Shostakovich that um, you find compelling? I know you've played his violin concertos. I know you like his music. What is it about Shostakovich that speaks to you? Mm. Well, I'm always struck by how f for s over the course of so many years and so many pieces it's almost like he's trying to write the same piece sometimes if you, you I'm struck by how similar themes and elements and motives come out again and I think it's um it's just you know the the one composer who somehow managed to put into music maybe what it feels like to live mm -hmm. under this kind of oppression of totalitarian regime um in such a way that you can understand it even if you've never lived in such a system you know i think when when people heard this i mean you you're right not everyone would have you know some of some of the so, sort of happy music in Shostakovich, you can kind of enjoy it also on a superficial level, uh, just as happy. You don't always have to see it. You know, it's, it's still good, right. and then you understand that it's sarcastic and it's a different level of listening. But I, I'm sure that there were many people, especially in Shostakovich's circle of friends and other artists, and just pe people who were more thoughtful or had a more of an understanding of what was really going on, who understood what's, you know, who recognized the feeling and the emotion in this music mm. and what what this was. So it spoke, it spoke to them. It's like, in a way, someone else who's talking to them and they know that they're not alone. Someone else is, feels the same way as them, right? Even though it's something that you're not allowed to talk about. Right. With music, you find a way to express it and communicate you communicate it yeah. anyway and I think it's can so that I imagine was actually really comforting mm -hmm. to people um, of course then in the West um, 
they love the fact that there was just a Kovic because it was almost like, you know, look how horrible the Soviet Union is. You know, mm -hmm. like just listen to this music and you know what it's like to live. You know, so, so, he, um, <laughs> I mean, the the violin music that he wrote. I have to say the 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 first violin concerto, certainly that, the first movement of that. Is just about as desolate and um, hopeless as it gets. There was another piece that he actually kept in a drawer for many years, and only published it later. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, he kind of fudged the opus number even to kind of hide the fact that it was a much much earlier mm -hmm. piece. Yeah, and um, and then he has also written, I think, a wonderful. Um, violin sonata for, for sonata for violin and piano which doesn't get played so much because it's a it's a kind of hard to program because it's really really depressing <laughs> really depressing but it's incredibly incredibly moving um, so I would say yeah his mood did not improve after mm. <laughs> Stalin's death but yeah it's I don't know it's very very moving music and there are emotions that you don't find so often in other composers. And when you now juxtapose it with with Sibelius, it's also, you know, it's from another country where it's really cold and snowy and, you know, they have similar weather, but it's what a difference it mm -hmm. makes when somebody writes it who feels that kind of freedom. It's actually music that is feels in a way very free. Mm -hmm maybe because it evokes all this nature and you can just imagine like standing there in the mm -hmm. this vastness and on, on the other hand in Shostakovich you feel like the walls are closing in and you mm -hmm. actually have no space at all for yourself. Yeah, Shostakovich is showing up on a lot of programs. Uh, Boston Symphony is doing a cycle of Shostakovich is very hot these days. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, Ward, is this at all a mirror of our times? Well, <coughs> I wish that some of the things we talk about when we talk about Shostakovich were only history, but unfortunately they are applicable in modern times. Um, but, you know, it's still different. I think that the thing that um, makes Shostakovich's situation special is that he, w whenever I think about his music and, you know, everything that, Augustine was talking about with, you know, the, the repetition, but also the communication with people, you know, um, it really was all he had. I mean, truly all he had. We, we often talk about, you know, the artist who devotes his or her life to, you know, their art and, you know, sleepless nights, you know, putting yourself through all the, yeah, 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 yeah. But he literally, that's all he had that he could hold on to. And it was so dear to him and so close and so important you get the feeling, I mean, that, that intensity, I think, comes through in his music for me, and, and it's, it's unlike anything else. You know, I, I was speaking once um, to a soloist about Prokofiev, and I asked why he went back. He was a Russian pianist, and I said, why would he go back? He knew what was happening to Shostakovich. He knew what was happening in the Soviet Union. He was safe, he was in Paris, he was in the US, he was good. And he went back anyway. And she commented that it has to do with the love of home. Mm 
-hmm. It has to do with the love of Russia and Mother Russia. And I always wonder with Shostakovich if in the end he didn't just have his music, but he had this country that he loved so deeply. But I don't think he loved what it had become. I think he wished. That's the thing. Uh, Every Russian person that I've ever met still has this great connection with their nationality. And I think it's one of the things throughout history that makes their art so amazingly rich and powerful. I mean, there's always that great sense of soul, you know, literature, music, painting, ballet, I mean, you name it. Um, But this period in the 20th century uh, was just awful. I mean, it's like the polar opposite of that. And to have to try to find a way to thrive and and create in that kind of atmosphere is such a Herculean task. Uh, I just, I, and, but at the same time, you wonder what would have happened if uh, Shostakovich was, you know, living in L.A. Would he, <laughs> you know, he would have would written he, <laughs> music for, I don't know, Gone he, with the Wind. Or, yeah, I yeah. mean, would he, you know, <laughs> what would have happened? I don't know. I don't know. It's it's amazing. Um, and, you know, there's this great, <laughs> there's this great story um, uh, about, the the discovery the rediscovery of the score for the nose I don't know if you've ever heard that because he wrote it in the twenties and uh, you know it was huge success when it was first premiered and then what happened Stalin and you know his cronies saw it didn't like it it was banned all the copies of the music were supposedly destroyed and he was denounced and he was denounced that was part of the whole you know and then we had Lady Macbeth and you know we all know that story. But this was in the 20s, and then in um, in the 70s, just before Shostakovich died, um, I think it was Rozdzwinski uh, who, s- literally, the story goes, he just stumbled on it at the Bolshoi when he was cleaning the pit. He had to move something, and, he, and a floorboard came loose, and he picked it up, and underneath was this score that was so, it was clear it was music, but he couldn't even read it. It was so dirty, because it had been there since 1928 or whenever, and he brushed it off, and he saw that it was the nose, which nobody thought there was even a copy of the music that existed anywhere. They thought they were all destroyed. Someone had cleverly just hidden it under a floorboard. He found it, and he decided he wanted to mount a production. This is in the, I think, 73 or 4. It was right before Shostakovich ended up dying, actually, but he was still around. So he started rehearsing, not knowing, uh, Razetsvensky did, started rehearsing, not knowing whether he would be even allowed to make the performances, mm-hmm. but he thought this was important. And so he had gotten everything prepared to a point that he was satisfied with it enough to invite Shostakovich to a rehearsal. And at this point, Shostakovich, you know, is very old, infirm. His eyesight was awful. You know, he, he had troubles w- with his eyes for most of his life. Uh, in fact, I think one time he famously told his friend Benjamin Britten that, uh, you know, d- don't show me this score, just play it for me. My ears are a lot better than my eyes, you know. Mm. But he sat in the rehearsal hall the story goes for uh, two or three hours and listened to them play the whole thing and they tried to give him a, they made another copy of the score and they gave it to him and he said no I don't need it I remember everything from 1928 okay this is in the 70s and at the end of the rehearsal Razasvensky came back and said so what and he said I think in bar 131 you've left out this that and he was quoting bar number instrument note like like exquisite detail based on only sitting there listening to a piece he hadn't seen or heard since the 20s. So that gives you some idea of 
the importance, I think, of the music in his life and how he just held everything inside always. And there's even footage, you should look for it online if you're interested. Someone filmed this and you can see Shostakovich sitting in the hall with his eyes closed, but he's singing along to the whole thing. This is music that he hasn't seen since 1928 or heard. Uh, and he knew every note, he knew every bar, and he was making corrections without a score. Hmm. However many years later, I think that's just, you know, music was so important for him. That's all he had. I'm glad that he left us with a bunch of it, and I'm glad that you were able to come by and talk to us about it. Uh, thanks so much, Ward, and it's always such a pleasure to talk to you, Augustine, so thank you for being here as well. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, if you'd like some information about the Rochester Philharmonic season, you can go to rpo.org. I'm Julia Figueres. This podcast is a production of WXXI Public Broadcasting.